The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Today, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, a genuine war hero, former Senator Bob Carey. The Senator will be joining us a little bit later to give us his take on mentoring. But first, I'd like to briefly recap some of the important lessons learned from the guests we've had on already. First, I'd like to discuss the distinction between mentoring, supervising, coaching, and teaching. A lot of people ask me about that. My guests agreed that mentoring is deeper, richer, and more personal than coaching, teaching, or supervising. And someone can be in more than one of those roles at the same time. So a person can be a supervisor and a mentor, or a coach and a mentor. Mentoring is more collaborative than any of these other relationships. It takes input from both people and both people grow as a result of that. There is a mutual felt responsibility. Mentors and mentees are more likely to socialize and become friends. As a matter of fact, many of the guests said that their mentoring relationships lasted often for many years. The next issue is whether or not formal mentoring programs can work effectively. One of our guests, Dr. Lisa M. Finkelstein, wrote a book called Designing Workplace Mentoring Programs, an Evidence-Based Approach. So it is the case that formal mentoring programs can add a lot of value. And please, if you're thinking about implementing a mentoring program, please buy her book, Designing Workplace Mentoring Programs, an Evidence-Based Approach. When I asked her what her main advice was for people implementing mentoring programs in their organizations, she said, it must be in alignment with your culture. And she told a very interesting example. She said one organization she worked with said, in our program, we have to make sure that the mentees are empowered to make the final choice about who they want their mentor to be. In another organization, they said just the opposite. They said, our people will expect us to do our homework and make good judgments about what the mentee-mentor relationships should be. So being in alignment with your culture is her main advice. And her second piece of advice was make sure the implementation of the program teaches people how to start the mentoring relationships. Many new mentors really would like to be mentors, but they're not sure what to do. And it's the same thing with mentees. They're not sure how to be the best possible mentee. The final issue I'd like to discuss is how to find a mentor. All of my guests said, you must identify somebody, ideally in your profession, whom you respect and admire, and then ask them if they'd give you a little time to give them some advice. 
Another piece of advice about how to find a mentor is join a professional organization. You'll meet more people and therefore more possible mentors will come to your attention. One final lesson learned is you don't absolutely need a mentor to advance and be successful in your career. Two of my guests, highly successful, Horst Schultze and Judge John Stedman, said that they did not have a mentor, somebody who took them under their wing and helped them in their career. Yet they've been highly successful anyway because they've been open to learning from a variety of people. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter, and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Welcome back to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. I'm here with Senator Bob Carey. Senator Carey, welcome to the show. My guest today is Senator Bob Carey. To say that Senator Carey has had a distinguished career would be a major understatement. Let me give you some highlights. Mr. Carey served as a U.S. Navy SEAL during the Vietnam War. He was wounded and permanently disabled, and for his service, he received the Medal of Honor. He is a genuine war hero, and I want to start by thanking him for his service. He also served as Nebraska's governor and as a senator from the state of Nebraska. He has served on the 9-11 Commission, the advisory board of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association, co-chair of the Concord Coalition, and the National Resources Defense Council. From 2001 to 2011, Senator Kerry was president of the New School, a university founded on democratic ideals and daring educational practices. During his tenure, the school experienced unprecedented growth and success. Currently, he's the managing director at Allen and Company, and he's also executive chairman of the Minerva Institute for Research and Scholarship, supporting the Minerva Project, an exceptional liberal arts and sciences education. Senator Kerry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be with you. And I, again, I want to thank you for not only military service for to our country, but all of your many years of public service. I'm just curious. Uh, what I, I just want to start with uh, 
what are you doing now? What what projects are you working on right at the moment? Well, at, at Allen, uh, I work with uh, businesses small and big that are doing using education uh, healthcare technology to uh, to prove both the quality and in some cases lower the cost of healthcare um, with a, uh, a couple things in education as well. But well, I would say mostly at the moment uh, in uh, healthcare and where there's a you know, there's a, there's a, particularly in the bio area, there's a revolution going on um, in terms of the way uh, uh, particularly cancers are being treated. And then I'm doing a few things on the uh, not-for-profit things. I'm still involved. Uh, you, you mentioned the Minerva Institute, Minerva Project. Um, you know, I'm, uh, um, you know I'm, I, I do a couple of other things that are, I would consider to be sort of my voluntary projects. Terrific. Let's talk about mentoring. Who yeah. is the first person that you can remember who you would say fell into that relationship we call mentoring for you, a mentor for you? Oh, it's a close call. I mean, it's approximately the same time I had a, uh, a you know, there was a youth leader in my church. There was uh, a, a gentleman who was a very close friend of my father that ran the the local YMCA, uh, who was very important. I had a, uh, a, a football coach that was very important for me. Um, you know, so it's kind of a combination. They had a, a, a couple of teachers and uh, uh, that were very important to me as well in the, in the public schools that I attended. So there's a, there's, you know, I was from a very early age. I mean, and I, 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 you know, I was very lucky. I had two terrific parents. They never disappointed me. But still, I found myself away from the family uh, getting very, very good, uh, not just advice, but role models and, and help writing the rules of, you know, that you need to live by. Well, let's talk about the, the youth leader from church. What was right. that person's name? Alverson uh, yeah, was his name. And, you know, he was a, he was a, a preacher as well, a reverend in the, in the church. But in the, in the youth groups, you know, you're adolescent to teenager that's a, those are difficult years your brain isn't quite caught up to your body and there's all kinds of things going on even in the in the pre-drug years or there's mistakes that you can make that can that can accumulate so that that church that youth leader was extremely important for me and I you know I at the time you probably he'd probably say god he's an ordinary kid and I don't know if I can uh, you know because he haven't disciplined me from time to time and um, but he did. He, he, he did discipline me when I got out of line, and he did help me figure out what I should and shouldn't do. But others in that, in that time frame did as well. What do you remember in particular uh, that he might, or is there anything you remember in particular? Well, I mean, what I remember, in, 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 his case, in his case, it was all about rules. Um, you know, the, there's... There's rules laid down in the, in, in the Bible. There's rules laid down outside the Bible. It's about trying to figure out what you consider to be right and what you consider to be wrong, and and how to, you know, how to behave according to whatever rules you adopt. So, um, you know, I would say on the football side. I mean, I was uh, I had a pretty bad childhood asthma, and the symptoms would come on approximately Labor Day of the year, about the time football practice started. And I was, you know, I was small and uh, 
um, weak and slow. Other than that, I was probably a gifted athlete. So, uh, you know, and I, and in my senior year, I expected to be starting and I didn't even make the team. And I, and I, I left and, you know, intending to quit. And my father sent me back and the coach urged me to stick with it. And what had happened was over the summer, I had learned to snap the ball for punts and got quite good at it. And the first game we had that I didn't play in, uh, you know, the the, the starting center, um, you know, threw a couple snaps over the punter's head and we lost the game. And I started every game thereafter. So, but what I was, what I learned from this man was uh, go quit. Don't just keep, keep, keep pushing ahead. And, may feel like you're not doing very well, but, but don't give up. And it was a extremely important lesson in my life. So that's what you learned from Alverson. Well, uh, uh, that's what I, uh, which from, or from, my from the Bauer. football coach. Uh, Alverson is more about rules, more about okay. trying to figure out, trying to understand what you believe personally is right, what you believe personally is wrong and, uh, and living accordingly. Whereas Bauer was much more, you know, don't don't quit, you know, just keep going, and you never know what's going to happen if you keep going. I'm curious about Mr. Alverson. You said mm-hmm. he disciplined you. What did that discipline look like? Oh, sit in the corner. Um, really? You know, oh sure, acting up in in Bible study class, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was that was a the thing that I remember the most. Uh, so it's, and, and it was about, again, it was about drawing boundaries and he would talk, he would spend time with me though. It wasn't just sitting in the corner. It was afterwards sent in time and said, you know, you did something that was wrong and here's why it's wrong. You interfered with other people and uh, you inconvenienced them. And uh, that's why I disciplined you. I didn't discipline because you were talking up. I disciplined you because uh, you weren't thinking about how you were interrupting and, and, um, other people and making their, you know, making their experience um, less positive as a consequence of your behavior. Um, so the discipline involves some teaching. Yeah, the the discipline absent the the, the teaching wouldn't have meant much. Um, it just been, you know, maybe I don't do it anymore because I almost sit in the corner. But it was it was more him sitting down with me and talking me through why the discipline occurred and what it meant and. and why it was important not to ruin the experience of other people just to um, just to get the attention of the group. You also mentioned there was somebody from the YMCA. Let's talk about that person for a minute. Well, the the Y was very important. I mean, one of the things I think Americans miss. I discovered it uh, one, uh, in, in, in in a number of settings, uh, but the biggest discovery came when I was president of the New School in New York City. Um, uh, Americans are more generous than any nation on earth. That's not an exaggeration. That's a fact. And it's underappreciated, particularly in the political debate. Last year, Americans gave away $400 billion cash. Um, that's more than the GDP of all but 15 nations on earth. And they, uh, my guess is another $400 billion of volunteer time, just time they give up. And that's what happened to me at, at, the, at the YMCA. They were youth leaders, uh, uh, and Johnson was a guy that r- ran the program, but, but he had volunteers coming in, and he himself was volunteering time way beyond. He was, you know, he wasn't on the clock. He, he just spent time with, with kids. 
and he organized activities for you. Uh, camping activity, outdoors activity, athletic activities, public service activities. I mean, we, we, he kept us engaged. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, and, and he's not alone. I mean, I, I saw it when I was in the hospital in Philadelphia there for almost nine months and there were volunteers coming in and, uh, you know, took us out on, a, on, on boats and, and took us into their homes and, and gave us meals and, but, but they just came in and basically said, we care about you and it's going to be all right. And across the country that goes on. Maybe not as much as we would like, uh, but it, it, you know, Little League softball teams, Lions Club, Rotary Club, I mean, all these VFW, American Legion, DAV, they all are out there volunteering. And that's, I mean, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't understand it as a volunteer act with, with the YMCA. Uh, but Harlan Johnson, he was on salary, but, but most of the time that he was working with you, he was, he was volunteering. You know, you make an interesting point, which is a little bit of, of a diversion, but I'd, I'd like to pursue it about the, the generosity of Americans, the volunteering and the charitable contributions. And right. not many people do talk about this in the big picture. Why do you think Americans do more of this than other countries do? Uh, look, I, there's a, there's a terrific book, uh, uh, by Charles Murray called Coming Apart, in which he asserts, and, uh, I'm without any evidence to the contrary, I, I, I think he's got it right, that the thing that makes America, the four characteristics that make Americans, America exceptional are, uh, religiosity, uh, secular, by the way, not, you know, trying to convert the world, uh, but just recognizing a higher power, acquiring values from it. Uh, marriage, uh, you know, lots of divorces going on, including myself many, many years ago. But marriage on, on balance will, uh, is good for your health and good for your happiness and honesty and, and industriousness. Um, and it, 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 it seems to me that the generosity of Americans come from somewhere in that set of values. And Murray also makes it, makes a case that, that, that part of the coming apart that's occurring is, the elites are separating from everybody else, and uh, and one way they're separating is that they aren't joining um, the Legion, the DFE, and the VFW. Uh, they aren't becoming a part of the, you know, of these community service organizations. Um, and it's a, and so I'm having having benefited from the, from the my, myself and spending time uh, with these organizations. I just see how powerful they are and how wonderful they are, and I think it's some combination of people just feeling this is my civic duty. I'm an American. I was lucky to be born here. I have an obligation to give back. Um, I, you know, I have an obligation to serve in some way to help other people. Some of it's probably connected to, um, you know, religious faith and the teachings of, uh, of, you know, most of the, most of the major religions in the United States. And some of it's, it's, it's not religion at all. It's just an examination of, of ethics and trying to decide what's right and wrong. And, Look, I, I don't think there's anybody that's more critical of America than Americans. And and among the things that Americans are constantly doing is trying to answer the question, are we doing the right thing? Um, and, you know, sometimes it's difficult to do the right thing. So I, 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 I think it's, I, I, it's one of those situations where I don't think you can point to one thing that says this is why Americans give away $400 billion and this is why they give so much of their time and volunteer effort for their communities. That's interesting, and this may be a semantic uh, uh, issue from me, but it 
it seems to me it's possible that generosity uh, might be a fifth item that stands uh, with the other items and doesn't have to be generated from them that on its own generosity Good. might be something I mean, that I, distinguishes I no, us. I, um, I've got five fingers in each hand, so I'm willing to add it as a fifth. And so, uh, <laughs> but there's no question that the, that it's powerful and no question that it's unique. I mean, second place is way down the list. Um, I mean, it, and it, again, it's, it's so underappreciated, the generosity, the, the giving of, of both money and time. And I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to diminish. It may be that the, the millennials that say acquire wealth would give it differently. That's entirely possible. And in fact, it's likely, but I don't think we're, there, there's no, no evidence of the slowing down of a willingness to give time and, and, and money. It occurs to me that generosity is also a part of mentoring for somebody to make the oh. conscious, intentional decision to invest their time in a particular individual uh, is in, a, in itself, I think, a form of generosity. Well, it is, and it, 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 you're exactly right, it is. And I think it's, a, it's important to note that uh, most mentors don't get thanked for 15, 20 years. Because it's, it's, it's the uncommon youth, and I'm not in that category, uh, that appreciated the mentors that they have. Because um, you know they all got that old man giving me advice, and now now they're forty years younger than I'm forty years older than they were at the time they were giving me it. They were providing being a mentor. I, I appreciated what they did for me uh, long after uh, the mentoring activity itself occurred. So it's not one of those situations where you get immediate gratification. It's, in fact, it's one of those situations where it's unlikely that you will. In fact, it's it's also likely that you're going to be mentoring and and you're going to fail. Um, you know, it's not not always the case that that you succeed in mentoring. Sometimes uh, the uh, the individual makes some bad decisions and again gets off the tracks. Senator, we're going to break for a brief commercial here, and when we come okay. back, I'm going to continue our discussion on mentoring and find out whether Senator Kerry has gone back to some of the people he's mentored. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter, and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit within an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person -person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Welcome back. I'm here with Senator Bob Carey, 
we're talking about mentoring, we're talking about generosity of the American people. And as I said before the break, I want to ask you, Senator, have you gone back and had conversations with any of your mentors? Uh, yes. I mean, I certainly have uh, the, the, the three that I mentioned. There's a fourth one who was a teacher, one of my you know, great science teacher in high school. And in all cases, I've, you know, I've, I've managed to reach back at some point after I had the experience to, to thank him. Uh, probably not enough. I'm not sure you ever can enough, but I, I certainly have had conversations with him. And they're not alone. There's others that have uh, given me a lot. I mean, one of the things you, you, you didn't mention in the beginning is that uh, when I got out of the service, I started a business in Omaha. My brother-in-law and I did. And, uh, gosh, there were so many people along the way who would provide, you know, really good advice, uh, either by example or by, you know, some, you know, some suggestions about what they consider to be a good course of action. But oftentimes it's mentoring, you know, it comes in unexpected ways. I was on, when I first started in business in Omaha, they, they, there was a committee called the Committee on the Employment of the Handicapped. And the mayor of Omaha at the time, Ed Zerinsky, put me on that committee. And I never forget, a, a, a man came there and spoke to uh, our group, you know, and he was born without any arms. And he told the story, it was quite a moving story, about uh, how he learned to put his shirt on for the first time. And he, could, he did everything with his feet. I mean, he'd eat with his feet, and he'd, go out and he'd write you know, notes with his feet. I mean, it was extraordinary what he had learned to do. So anyway, he t- told the story, and he's 10 or 11 years old. He put on this shirt, and he ruined it in the process of putting it on. He was sweating, and, but he got it on. He succeeded. And he looked up in the doorway, and there was his mother standing with a neighbor woman. And the neighbor woman said to his mother, how come he didn't help him? And his mother answered, I did help him. And oftentimes that's what mentoring is, you know, not interfering with an effort that's being made, uh, supporting not just the success, but supporting the failure, supporting the willingness to try uh, without getting in there and doing it for the other person. So it's a, you know, mentoring is a, is a, is a, is a, you know, it's a human exercise and as a consequence of being human exercise, it's very unpredictable, uh, you know, but it does. As you said earlier, it does begin with either gratitude that somebody else helps you or uh, somehow acquiring the capacity sufficiently generous that you're, you're willing to try. Tell me, uh, tell me about this science teacher. Who was that person and what did you learn from him or her? Oh, uh, his name is Bob Reese uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Reese, as we would call him. And he um, he taught me to make observations and to patiently record those observations and um, to try as a con- and try to understand either with examining what we knew at the time, which was considerably different than what we know today about this about chemistry. He was a chemistry teacher. Uh, we know we know we know much more as a consequence of many other people. I didn't I didn't create much of that knowledge base, but. It's that act of uh, persistently making observations, recording the results of the observations, and then trying to draw some conclusion from those observations, using formulas that others have written, and trying to, you know, trying to push the both your own ignorance out through these observations, and maybe humanity's ignorance out as well. So, 
yeah, he was a he was a very important, uh, very important teacher for me. And I, you know, I was um, actually studying uh, pharmacy when I'm in graduate school, when I was, um, you know, given the opportunity to get a free physical, I end up in the United States Navy. So I, I even though I didn't stay with you know, science, I've used uh, the, many of the things that uh, Mr. Reese taught me at the time. That was going to be my next question. Has this focus on observation informed how you performed in your roles as as governor and as president of the university and so forth? Do you still use that? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, just an appreciation for the effort required to make a discovery and for the importance of creating a social, political, economic environment that encourages that exploration. Because one of the big challenges, uh, particularly, is now comes 16-year-old Bob Carey home and says, you know, Dad, you've been telling me something is wrong. I've learned, I've made a discovery that's at odds. These discoveries can make people very uncomfortable. Uh, And and, and we hear people diminishing it. You know, uh, experts aren't valuable. We've been listening to experts too much. No, we've been actually listening to experts too little. There's no evidence we listen to experts <laughs> too much. There's no, uh, so I, I think the most important thing is to is to support the kind of political, social, economic environment. It's why we're a democracy. It's why our economy does so well. But it's why um, these discoveries, uh, you know, have for the most part transformed our lives for the good. Uh, and then in my own life, I mean, for whatever, I, I continue to be interested in, in, in science. I. I I understand less and less of it because it gets now it's down into molecular uh, biology and chemistry, and it's it's harder to understand it. But I do, you know, I do do continue to examine what's going on to the extent of my deteriorating brain's capable of doing it. <laughs> Would you say that global warming falls in this category of a discovery that is making people uncomfortable? Yes, I mean you need high school chemistry to understand. Um, you know, that carbon dioxide, methane gases trap heat. You don't need, uh, you know, I don't need a PhD to figure this one out. In fact, you don't even need high school chemistry. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, and when the gases are, the heat's trapped, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get warming. And, you know, 14 of the 15 warmest years in the, since we've been, human beings have been recording it have occurred in the last 14 years. So, um, you know, I, I, it, it's, and by the way, I, I, I don't think it's a necessity for us to change in some fashion that requires us to suffer and give up all kinds of things. We just have to acknowledge it and develop systems that allow us to, as Warren Buffett always told me, he's from Nebraska, so I have the benefit of, uh, of his wisdom from time to time, just write the rules so when people satisfy what's in the rational self-interest, you have a desirable outcome. So we're just going to have to write the rules so that you know, the, when we when we when we generate the energy that we need in our lives, uh, uh, we're we're producing less carbon. It's not. It's going to be easier for us, frankly, than it is for many parts of the developing world where they they can't do what we did. Um, but it's yeah, I, I I think it's very very obvious and concerning that we're not doing about doing much to to solve this problem. Why do you think there's so much resistance to this notion? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I think in some cases the changes are hard. You know, it's if if I've 
if, if, if I'm working in a, in a, in a um, you know, hauling coal out of the ground in Wyoming or Pennsylvania or Ohio or West Virginia, and my father did the same thing, my grandfather and great-grandfather, I got a business in coal, I'm worried because you know, coal-fired plants are generate a lot of carbon. We cleaned it up, we scrubbed it up, and, but it's, it's, it's not as clean as, as natural gas. It's not as clean as hydro. It's not as clean as nuclear. It's not as clean as, as you know, as solar. So I'm, it's, it's like, uh, you know, during the First World War, uh, we went, because France was on its back and Germany was on its back, I mean, we, we went from most of our agricultural energy being generated by horses to most of it being generated by internal combustion engines. But we slaughtered six million horses. And no question that uh, those horses could vote. They either voted no. <laughs> so these, these changes can be hard. I hear people talking about self-driving cars. Gosh, we have three million independent truck drivers. And please don't tell me you're going to retrain them into doing something else. If they're making fifty-five to $60,000 a year, they're, they're, it's, it's traumatic, uh, these changes. So it's easy to about it if it's not having a direct day-to-day impact on you. But boy, if it is, if it's your job, if it's your livelihood, if it's your business, uh, you know, then a, a national average doesn't mean much. It's it's me you're talking about. I'm, uh, so, uh, it, yeah, I, I, I understand why it's difficult. And I think we, I, we have, but we have to acknowledge that the problem exists and look for a way to solve the problem to do not just as little damage as possible, but but to uh, do it in a way that actually creates more jobs and creates more economic opportunity. So, but it's a lot easier to say it than to do it. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it it it's a monumentally challenging and complex issue. Yeah, you the companion one. I I tend to support the lowering of trade uh, barriers. I tend to uh, support relatively liberal immigration policy and the development of technology. But all three of those put downward pressure on wages. And when I got out of high school in 1961, most of my class uh, went straight into the workforce. It was probably 20 years before going to college generated more income. You know, these these were jobs that you could support a family. That had post-retirement health care and had... uh, you know, defined benefit retirement programs. Uh, you know, and the rule was you, you know, left for a couple of years and went in the military and you came back. Uh, my my father-in-law uh, died recently and he's well into his 90s, worked for the Burlington Northern Railroad. Uh, they had a representative there at his funeral. So, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's easy to talk about how something is good for us, but uh, if you ignore... The, the negative side of it, the people that are, are going to be adversely affected, just, they just think you're a fool. Uh, think you don't understand. Think you don't appreciate the, uh, the, the you know, what, what, what they're going through, which is kind of back to the whole mentoring thing. I mean, it, uh, to, to be a good mentor and to be mentored, by the way, because it's a two-way street, you have to have the capacity to be sympathetic. And I, I, when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I, I, I'm sure I was, Occasionally sympathetic, but but that's an acquired skill. You're not born with that, um, and it's 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 it's. I think it's essential for uh, the kind of charitable giving that goes on, the volunteering goes on, and the kind of kind of for the most part great mentoring that still occurs in our country. If you were the mentor of someone 
who is currently driving a truck or someone who is working in the coal industry and they are experiencing hardship because those jobs are going away. What, what, so you have a specific individual sitting in front of you. Right. What would you advise that individual to do? Oh man, uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure there is any good advice, other than expressing considerable amount of sympathy and offering to help, and maybe you can find a way to help. Maybe you can't, but um, you know, it's 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 painful. I, I mean, I got fired once in my life. I mean, I, it was well deserved, but I still remember it uh, and the pain of it. And and you know, if you all of a sudden you you're you're you know you're you go from fifty thousand dollars a year to eighteen thousand dollars a year. You just think I'm not. I'm not. I don't have any value. I'm not. I'm valueless, and it hurts. So most importantly, I would say don't try to. I mean, I, what I would try to do is not give advice, uh, but express sympathy uh, and express an understanding for the pain, which it's hard to hard to share pain. Uh, but that's what they're enduring. They just lost something. And that's something is is very important, which is a sense of value that they have, that they're that they're that they that they're worth something in life. Wow, uh, that is, uh, I think, a very profound insight, and I think it applies. Well, it, but it did, it didn't happen by accident. I mean, I, I lost a leg, and I get called upon uh, quite frequently to to meet with people who have suffered some trauma, typically an amputation. You know, but it informs my policy decisions. Before you go to it, you say, look, you've just lost something. And people will say to you, oftentimes, I remember people would say, you know, you're going to be able to do everything you could before. That isn't true. Um, there are going to be things you cannot do. And you're going to, you're going to, it's going to hurt. But most importantly, you've just lost something important. Go ahead and grieve it. Go ahead and get angry about it. You know, at some point, you got to persevere through the pain. At some point, you got to recognize that, that it, though it's true, there's things you cannot do. There's things that you're going to be able to do that you can never do before. Um, so it's it's you know it's it, I, it's not I, I didn't acquire this in the public school system or from my mentoring. I acquired it from personal experience, uh, from people coming in trying to help me. Now I've suffered a loss. I don't feel valuable anymore. I'm 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 I'm, I'm afraid for people to see that the. Uh, the the disfigurement that occurred as a result of the injury. Uh, I'm self-conscious about it. My valuation of myself went down. And I had people in the hospital in Philadelphia that would come in and just, all they did was lay a hand on me and say, it's going to be okay. It's, it's so valuable when you're a, you're a recipient of unexpected kindness. It's such a powerful force. We really don't appreciate as human beings as much as we ought to how powerful uh, kindness, especially unanticipated, unexpected, surprising kindness it can be. It's time for another commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to discuss some highlights from Senator Kerry's remarks. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. 
Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit within an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Hello, I'm back, but as it happens, Senator Kerry is not. He had to jump off the call unexpectedly, as we can well imagine. He's got a lot of uh, very important and urgent matters to pay attention to. So I want to thank Senator Kerry for the time he was able to give us. As I said just before the break, I think his remarks are full of wisdom. In particular, I want to mention his remark about people experiencing loss. We're talking about change on the big picture with certain certain innovations like self-driving cars and moving away from coal as a source of energy and how these innovations are eliminating jobs for people and how they're experiencing loss, they're experiencing pain. And I just want to mention that this is the same thing on a smaller scale when companies or any kind of organizations are going through times of change. I think it's important to recognize that some employees in those companies are losing something that they value emotionally. And all the efforts to persuade employees that this change is going to be better for the company and it's going to ultimately be better for them and for the customers and for the shareholders, those things may in fact be true intellectually. And we must recognize that simultaneously an employee can recognize that this change makes sense for the company. But simultaneously, I'm losing something I value. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was when I was 16, I was working in a McDonald's. I could just get my working papers. I was working in a McDonald's. And at the time, I was on the French fry station. And the technology of the time was I had a pair of metal tongs the kind that snap open, so their default uh, state is they're open, and you can close them, there's a spring that snaps them open. We all have those in our kitchen. You know what I'm talking about. Well, we had those, and what we had to do with the French fries is we didn't have any cardboard containers. We had paper bags that were all folded flat, and so the way you had to do the French fries took, took some skill. You had to close the tongs, insert them in the flat folded paper bag, turn them on the side, 
and let them snap open so the bag was open. And then you would hold this bag in your hand. You would take the tongs and kind of move the French fries around a little bit until they got roughly parallel. And you'd grab the right amount of French fries and you'd put them in this paper bag. And you had a little scale there. You could weigh them. But when you're going real fast, you wouldn't really have time to weigh each one to make sure it was exactly right. And periodically, your supervisor would come through and grab one or two of the bags just randomly and do a sample and weigh them and see whether or not you were getting the right amount of fries in there. And you could get really good at this. It was it was like playing a video game. You could get really good at how fast you could do this and how close you could get to the exact right weight every time. And then, and I was pretty good at it. And then McDonald's came along with a process improvement. They invented the scoop that you see in every McDonald's today, where instead of tongs, you use this scoop and you don't have to snap a paper bag open because you have these cardboard containers. And the the scoop is also a funnel and it makes the fries roughly parallel. And it's very good at getting the right amount of fries in one of those cardboard containers. And pretty quickly, almost overnight, my high level of skill at getting these fries in the bag on the old-fashioned method became irrelevant. The fact that I was good at that became irrelevant overnight because now, because of the new tools, everybody could do it as good or better as I was doing it. And I lost something I valued. And that's kind of a minor That's kind of a minor issue, but nevertheless, it's an illustration that just because a change is good and can be demonstrated to be good intellectually, we must remember that when change is going on in an organization, some employees are losing something they value, and we must not label them as negative simply because they're going through some sort of grief process. It may be a mild grief process, but nevertheless, they're going through a process where they've lost something they value, and it might have given them some sort of status in the organization, or it might just be something that they really enjoy doing that now is, for whatever reason, unnecessary. And we have to have some sympathy for these people and we have to have some empathy for these people. So if you're leading change in an organization, please remember this, that you must allow these people to have their feelings and not label them as negative or any of those kinds of things simply because they're losing something they value. We must allow them to go through their grieving process. It doesn't mean we... We, we relieve them of the responsibility to get on board with the new change. It just changes the way we understand why they're behaving the way they're behaving and how we respond to those behaviors. So that was something that came up for me when Senator Kerry was talking about uh, the grieving process that people are going to be going through as, as we go through these larger societal changes. So once again, I want to thank Senator Kerry for all of his many years of service to our country, both military and non-military, and for donating his time today to help us learn something. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.